panel on RNZ National. Wallace Chapman here. Very nice to be with you Thursday afternoon. Susie Ferguson uh, in for Friday. And with me this afternoon, I have Rwani Pereira and David Farrar. I have to read this out, by the way, uh, feedback. John says, my daughter-in-law is a paramedic. She's had a code red with a four-year-old dying. She has on occasion nudged motorists on the motorway to get through. <laughs> Thank heaven for nudge bars. Oh, so this yeah. is on the back of what you were saying, uh, Rwani. We've uh, had a big response on this. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you kind of look at it, I just kind of haven't thought of it in that context as well, of a paramedic. They're rushing to get somewhere, like thinking about all the medical things they have to do. And, you know, um, quite often they're asking probably questions to the call people and all of that and trying to get through rush hour traffic. Mm. No. It's one year since police officers cleared Parliament of anti-mandate protests. This is a 23-day occupation that ended in a flaming riot. On March the 2nd, 2022, police cleared hundreds of people from a sprawling occupation. The convoy that arrived at Parliament was originally protesting COVID-19 mandates, vaccines and restrictions. Among other things, morphed into a grab bag of anti-government feeling. He had Voices of Freedom, didn't he? Convoy NZ, Counterspin, Brian Tamaki's Freedom Coalition. Toilets, gardens also, showers, the laundry. The protest became embedded. Well, the lawns are growing back, but a year on from the occupation of Parliament, what has changed? Distinguished Professor Emeritus... Uh, Professor Emeritus Paul Spoonley is co-director of Hefenua uh, Taurikura, the National Centre for Countering Violent Extremism. Professor Spoonley, kia ora. Uh, kia ora, Wallace. Is it fair to call it a defining moment in New Zealand's political history? I think it is, and I think it represents a particular direction that some members of our community are going in in terms of having very low trust in experts and government and politicians and in the media, I'm sorry to say, Willis, and that uh, they are part of our political spectrum now that we should assume will be here for a while. What interested me, uh, and that you say that, there was in fact quite a long lead up to this. There was evidence that conspiratorial and often vitriolic views were expanding quite a bit prior. Yes, and, and what I mean by that is that when you look at the anti-1080 or anti-fluoridation or anti-5G or anti-compact on migration uh, activists and groups, then that, they've been around quite a while. And so what they did was come together in a sort of loose coalition during the COVID pandemic and objected to what they saw as government overreach. So they began to spread those conspiratorial misinformation, disinformation Sources and material around the community. And I, I, I would see it in two phases, Willis. I think the early one was just straight out anti vac so anti science, anti um, a reluctance to, to buy into the idea that COVID could be addressed by a vaccine. But then by the time you got the anti, um, when, when you got the mandates, you, knew, you had another constituency, which was the people who were affected because their jobs were lost or compromised because they wouldn't have a vaccine. So very broad range of constituencies came together, but boy, as you put in your uh, intro, 
Uh, it was a, a, a particularly telling moment in Parliament uh, this time last year. Wasn't it? Yeah, rewinding. Oh, seems surreal, actually, Professor, to, to, to you know, remember Revisited. that. Revisit it. Revisit yeah. it. And, and, you know, I've been down to Parliament since, and, and you walk past and seeing the grass all, you know, beautiful and manicured again, and it's kind of spooky. But, um, Professor, did you expect to see maybe a spin-off political party by now? Uh, yes, and and... During the 2020 general election, there were five political parties which all bought into these conspiratorial views, but, and they got about 3% of the vote, which is not inconsiderable, about 90,000 votes. And I'm just looking to see how those parties reemerge. You know, will, he, will Advance New Zealand and Billy Tekahika come back? And I just don't know the answer to that. The other side to that question is the people that would support those political parties and took part in that protest what will they do during the general election campaign? And we're beginning to get a sense, you know, that disruption of the Christopher Luxon meeting down in Canterbury a few weeks ago, the, the um, Kieran McInulty suspending. Oh, that's his, right. Yeah. So we're just getting a sense that some of these politics might mm. um, continue on. And will they, dis- and I don't know the answer, will they disrupt our general election this year? Mm. David Farrer. Well, I think that's a really interesting question. And I obviously I do political polling. And one of the things I've noticed is in the preferred prime minister stakes, uh, Leighton Baker has actually been polling, you know, not massively high, but sort of in that one to two percent range. And when you consider he's not even a party leader even more, he used to be the leader of the Conservative Party. But that, I think, it obviously comes from his role in the parliamentary protests. And it shows that there is a small but not insignificant minority that I think are still, this is the single issue for them. And we won't have, a, I think, advanced New Zealand standing this time. But there's three or four political parties who are probably all what I would say anti-vaccine or anti-vaccine mandate. Um, there's Brian Tamaki's lot, there's Suze Gray, etc. Um, and if you combine them all together, plus New Zealand First, I think, you know, in that space a wee bit, if they actually cooperated and didn't have all these different parties, you know, it's not impossible they could get pretty close to 5%. And it has gone beyond the vaccine mandate, though. I think some of the support is not all into all the global conspiracy theories now. The World Economic Forum, the latest one I've heard is about 15-minute cities, which is meant to be an urban design Goodness. stand you aim yeah. for, but they think it's that you'll get arrested or fined if you travel more than 15 minutes outside your right. city. Actually, can I pick up on that, uh, yeah. uh, both David and Paul? It's very interesting you mentioned this anti-global thing because um, Byron Clark, that researcher, said quite something I want to raise with you. Um, there was the belief that you know a small group of global elites is trying to reshape global society for their interests, or that you know COVID nineteen is a hoax or created, and these beliefs defy the common phrasing as far right or alt right because that also includes the left of politics and those pursuing causes that sit outside the traditional political spectrum. Is that something that you might agree with or relate to? Yes. Yes, I do. And can I just say, while we're talking about Byron, he's had to go into hiding because of threats made to his life. So 
you know, no. he's, yeah, it's, it's a really grim uh, situation for him. But yes, and when you look at the people who were at the protests at Parliament, what you saw is those traditional, some of them trade unionists, some of them left-wing, who saw what was happening as being as much a threat to them on the political left as those who were on the political right. So it's a, it's a real mismatch, uh, Wallace, in terms of what's happening there. And, and can I go back to the, the point about this, this, these globalists? Because very often a word like globalist is a code word for Jews. I think we need to be super careful. David has actually done some work for the Jewish community. And if you talk to the Muslim community, both of them are saying that here we are, even as we come out of COVID and that sort of anxious period when these conspiratorial politics were at their height, we're still seeing very large volumes of anti-Semitic and Islamophobic material. I mean, it is a very major concern when we start blaming people uh, who we think uh, have got a sinister plot to take over the world. Goodness. God, well, finally, um, Professor Spoonley, so where does this leave us as a society one year on? Uh, It seems to me things have irrevocably changed. Has Is the cat out of the bag, or um, will we get back to a back to how we were before, or what? I, I, I want to be an optimist, uh, Wallace, and I want to say that uh, what we saw during that uh, 2020 uh, through to 2022 period was an aberration. I suspect it's not. I, I think what we have are members in our community who cannot degree respectfully, particularly in terms of politics, and I think the test will come in our general election this year, whether or not we've put this behind us and we can disagree and argue, but we don't threaten and we don't hate and we don't disrupt. But I don't know that that will be the case. Paul Spoonley-Kyoto, thank you for your time. Uh, that is uh, the co-director of Efenua uh, Torekura, the National Centre for Countering Violent Extremism. A lot to think about there, Rawani Parera. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was like a losing of innocence, I think, really, last year, you know, and I think I definitely think the cat is out of the bag and he's absolutely right about the media, the scepticism and about media as well. It's harder It's harder now. Mm. Yeah. Uh, 17 past for Rawani Pereira and David Farrell with me on the programme. Now, we have had uh, quite the response regarding uh, ambulances not being let through. It's kind of um, ignited something in you because you're seeing it quite a bit. So mm. we, I might try and come to that a bit today and also more on that maybe on the panel next week, actually. But to this, this happened today, the Environment Minister has removed Rob Kelly Campbell as chair of the Environmental Protection Authority. Uh, it comes just two days after the health minister removed him as chair of Tefat Order. David Parker says Mr Campbell's comments criticising a national party policy were a clear breach of the public service code of conduct that he um, acted politically impartially. We talked about this with health commentator Ian Powell yesterday. So uh, if you don't know, Campbell offered a pretty blunt critique of National Party leader Christopher Luxon and National's new water policy on LinkedIn. So what are the dangers of company directors sounding off on this forum? It seems to be increasingly common uh, that it happens. And the spin-off bulletin editor Anna Rafati Connell has written on just this. Uh, Anna, kia ora. Kia ora, Walla. Uh, good to have you here, Anna. And so you've got the second sacking, a very hefty toll for putting up a post, Anna. Uh, yeah, but I guess the 
with social media is it's, um, especially if you've got a profile like Campbell does, is it's almost akin to, you know, publishing something, you know, on the Herald or Radio New Zealand. It's still a broadcast platform, especially with that level of profile. Yeah. Have you noticed this, Anna? I mean, LinkedIn, it used to be a fairly bland site for high-powered CVs. I've actually noticed over the last couple of years, I hardly ever went on it and just, mm. for no reason, just used to um, go on it every month. But gosh, um, do you think it's changing and how so? It's, it's no more immune to partisanship than any other social media platform. And I think people, you know, it's a bit of a trick for young players. And I'm not suggesting Campbell is. I think he's actually quite adept there. But it does look kind of boring and dull. But over the last few years, especially around the COVID stuff, people felt a lot freer to just spout off about kind of anything and, and like any platform, it's got an algorithm, and so that responds to provocation. All right, Rawani? Yeah, I mean, yeah, and it's it's really funny when you look online, there's so many interesting cases about um, people who have used Facebook or they might have few followers, like about 70 followers, but they've said anti-Semitic or homophobic or racist comments and, and been fired and, and then, you know, protested anti, you know, unfair dismissal and that kind of thing. But... Uh, yeah, fascinating. But you know, yeah, it's it's someone of his position. You would have expected uh, to know better. Do you think, Anna? I think he does know better. I think that's yeah. the thing. I, I think what we've seen from him is a fairly clear rejection of um, the rules in a lot of way. And and he didn't he didn't feel that the line was where everybody else thought the line was. Yeah, mm. yeah. David Farrer. What I found interesting with the latest sacking for Campbell, and look, there's, I don't think anyone's disagreeing that the sackings are the right things because, you know, it, it could have been survivable if he'd been apologetic and had used more moderate language, but he, he really doubled down. With the latest sacking, he said, well, Parker sort of wanted him to go anyway because he had brought co-governance in effectively to the EPA. And I don't want to get into a debate here about co-governance, but I think it's interesting when you think about this is a quite major issue and you've got board chair saying, I've introduced it. Where's the mandate for that? Where's the debate? And I think that's part of where actually the, the wider issue around the three waters has been around this too. So I thought that it's not just about what he said, but that he's been alluding to a greater tension with the government where he's been wanting to push the government in this direction and the government's been saying, actually, we don't want to be focusing on this. And, of course, his critique of Three Wars was partly around co-governance too. So it's not just what happened on social media, it seems. Okay, Anna? Yeah, I mean, I think if you think about the fact that he... I think he's pretty aware of where the line was in terms of being, you know, chair of a Crown agency. You know, I think David is potentially right in that he just has decided that, you know, he's got a point of view that he really wants to get across. And therefore, for him, doing what he did on LinkedIn was kind of just 
the beginning and perhaps decided that the risk was worth it. Yeah. I mean, this is what he said. Rob Campbell said this. Uh, he said many things, but this is what he said. Uh, I do think I'm politically neutral and impartial. That doesn't mean, as I've said, that I'm neutered. It doesn't mean that I'm sitting there like a stuffed parrot, a parrot that's been trained to say Polly wants a biscuit whenever the minister wants. That's not what I'm here for, and that's not what I signed up for, quite unquote. And I'm just wondering, Anna, and the panel, mm-hmm. is there a case to be made for someone as high profile and uh, as a significant role as a major and pivotal uh, once-in-a-lifetime health reform for that you need someone like this, that it's his KPIs that count, mm-hmm. not his hot takes on LinkedIn? I, I think there's definitely something in, I guess, if you're looking to attract different kinds of people to these mm. high-profile roles, you know, they, they do take on um, a fairly high level of risk and scrutiny by doing it in the first place. And, you know, sometimes I wonder whether, I guess, the, the sort of the, the pace at which, you know, media covers this and we jump on it and all the rest of it, whether it does make these kind of roles deeply unattractive to people. Right. Mm, it is. I mean, you wouldn't want to go for a job. And it's also, I mean, he's a contractor as well. I mean, I believe he wasn't paid, he said, since October. There's all these weird lines and boundaries that were crossed. But I think, um, you know, sabotaging the, the Māori Health Authority, I mean, you know, it's going back to basically square one now without his yeah. his input. I think that's the biggest tragedy out of the whole David? Thing. I think he actually has it totally wrong with what he said. He is meant to be neutered, but not meant to be neutral. And I'll give an example. When Michael Cullum was appointed to several board chairs by National, no one thinks Michael Cullum is a neutral figure. But they expected that he would be neutered while serving as those chairs, that he wouldn't be the chair of Kiwi Rail and attacking the government or doing speeches at Labour Party conference. So I think Campbell fundamentally didn't understand the limitations that, yes, you do get neutered. If he was chair of a ministerial task force, that's different. But this is the chair of the biggest entity in New Zealand in the public Listen, sector. Do, do, we, do, we, do we need to remind... dollars of expenditure. Do we stay there, Anna? Do we need to remind Alyssa's uh, David what you really stand for? Is that, I mean, you're an advocate for sp- free speech. Free speech. Yeah. free speech at its purest. And Richard Preble said this, Rob Campbell should be judged purely on his performance as a chair and not for his silly political views. So if you were a real speech, free speech advocate, David Farrer, You'd be consistent, you'd be consistent, and you would endorse his right to his views. Oh, he's got every right to his views if he's on a private sector board, he is. But it's different if you take up a senior public sector role. You Why? Don't Why? You're splitting hairs. I agree. You're splitting hairs, David ministers, I don't understand. Uh, ministers and the future ministers have to actually have trust and confidence in you, and you can't be both a politician and a senior public servant at the same time. You have senior public servants stand for parliament, but they don't go around making speeches, attacking the government or the right. opposition. I'm not quite sure I quite understand the difference job. there, David. Um, just finally, Anna, um, in the final instance, this is the reminder, and this is a, a reminder for us all. You, you wrote this. It is a reminder that unemployment... 
is just one post away. <laughs> it, it is. And I guess the thing is, is that he is entitled to his views and he's entitled to call up his mates and share those views. This is yeah. just the, the sort of baked-in impulse now of people to perpetually share them online. And it's not compulsory. And I think people would yeah. do well to yeah. remember that. Absolutely. Really and it's that old thing of like, write it out, get it off your chest, uncle, do all of that. <laughs> But just don't hit enter or send or any of those things. Nice one, Anna. Kia ora. Thank you very much for your time. That is uh, Anna Rafiti O'Connell, uh, uh, the spin-off uh, bulletin editor. Yeah, quite a bit of response uh, on that. I just wanted to bring up this uh, pretty left field, but I just wanted to get our panellists' take. Completely different topic here. But how would you feel about your son or daughter listening to the headphones in class. Well, for students of Christ's College and Christchurch, it would it will no longer be an option. Students have criticised the school's decision to ban headphones in class. One said the decision was, quote, further stripped away our individualism. Another said music increases morale and helped some students focus. Now, the school responded saying... The decision was based on research that shows most students cannot easily process written words while, you know, listen to, I don't know. Absolute rubbish. Do you think? <laughs> I mean, we can multitask, can't we? I usually have, like I'm writing a script and I'll have the TV going or something. I can't I can't actually write in complete, utter silence. But like, this, is, this is school. You're, you're learning well, your times yeah. tables. You're learning your algebras. You're learning... Um, Aren't they teenagers? Like the, older yeah, ones? But headphones in class, really? Yeah, but I mean, I see kids like listening to music as they're doing things and their homework and everything. I don't, I don't know. People are learning differently. Maybe they need that. I don't know. What does it say to you, David? Does it say, do you agree with Rwani or does it say to you, lack of focus, lack of concentration? I guess I sound a bit old fogeyish here, but I was stunned <laughs> that they were allowed them in the first place. I, I just never <laughs> imagined that kids could be sitting in the classroom meant to be listening to the teacher and having Queen in the background. I mean, when I was at school, I would have quite liked that. But I was genuinely queen? surprised. Queen. Queen. There were schools, um, I think it's more like allow you to use yeah. headphones. Um, do, do you hear what so, David's saying, Rowani? Yes, I do. But I just think, um, yeah, I just... Think things are different now. No, I, I just How think so? people learn learn differently, and I'm I just think in their own time. Like say it's like okay, now go and do this. If they want to listen to some music while they do it, the point is, do they hand it in? Do they do the job? That's the point. If they're not doing that, I just don't see. I'm, yeah, I'm just wondering uh, with such a focus. Maybe cut to their grades. You're allowed to listen to music if you get B plus or better. Okay. Solution. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A solution focus there, if they're tied to grades, gosh. I mean, did you not see Charlie Brown? Charlie Brown, that was back in the day, what was that, 50s, 60s cartoon, and every time the teacher stood up there, all Charlie Brown would hear was wah, 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 wah. (laughs) So that's all kids hear anyway. You're on the panel on RNZ National. What do you think? Uh, Should um, uh, teenagers be able to listen to headphones in class? Uh, It is 4.30. You're on the panel with Rwani Pereira, David Farah. I'm Wallace Chapman.